Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, we've been studying the book of Second Thessalonians, and in chapter 2, we've come to that portion which speaks about the day of the Lord and how it can't happen unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And within that, we see that we won't be in that day until that man of lawlessness is revealed. And we've been looking at the character of this man, that he is empowered by Satan himself. And yet we know that that won't happen when we're around. We know as believers, the Lord will take us first. We are not destined for wrath. But in that same passage in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we see that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That Satan is the god of this world and that he is actively acting in opposition to God. And yet he is restrained but he is certainly opposing, and we see that with believers. You see, we have an enemy. We have an enemy, and our enemy is the Lord's enemy. We see in Matthew chapter 13 that the Lord Jesus speaks of Satan as the enemy who sowed tares. The devil is his enemy, and thus we in Christ, the devil is our enemy. And so with that in mind, one who we saw last week in the book of Ezekiel, and we'll look at it again today, who was the most powerful angel, most beautiful, perfect, anointed cherub who covers, who fell. How can we stand against this foe? How can we stand against such a powerful enemy? Well, God's word is very clear, and we have a few passages that help us understand that, and we're going to look at one today. And so would you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6? And we're going to see God's instructions for us on how we will have victory over the schemes of the devil. Now, this is a mini picture, as we're going to see, of the Christian life. And as I mentioned earlier, although we will not enter into the day of the Lord, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And we have an enemy, and we see the wickedness around us. How can we stand against such a formidable foe? Well, as you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, I want to share the context of the book of Ephesians. Paul is writing to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. When I read that, I think of these saints, they're trusting the Lord and they're faithful in Christ Jesus. Are you a faithful servant of the Lord? That's an illustration and an application of someone who's really following Jesus Christ, who's really abiding in him. It's to those who've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, they're saints, and they are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, concerning the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul knows them well. He had visited them on his second missionary journey, and then on his third missionary journey, he stayed there for three years, Acts 19. Now, he taught for two of those years in the school of Tyrannus, and his influence for Christ was so great that the Artemis idol makers incited a riot against him. We see that in Acts chapter 19. And after leaving Ephesus, he ministered in Macedonia. And on his way back to Jerusalem, he stopped and called for the elders in Miletus, Acts 20. And we see a tearful farewell in which he exhorted them to shepherd the flock that the Lord had because there's threats to the flock. 
And then he gave them over to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build them up. That was the last personal contact the Apostle Paul would have with the Ephesians. But then approximately five years later, 62, 63, he would write them this letter as he is imprisoned under house arrest in Rome. Now, the overall broad context of the book of Ephesians is that in chapter 1, we have a planopy of praise. We have Paul praising God for all the spiritual blessings that we have in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. And then the Apostle Paul prays that we would have a greater wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Christ, and resulting from that knowing Christ deeper, that we would know the hope of our calling, the incredible worth we have in Christ and God's surpassing resurrection power towards those who believe. It's believers. Then in chapter 2 of Ephesians, we have the Ephesian believers' position in Christ and ours, if you're a Christian. Formerly spiritually dead, but now alive in Christ, having been saved by grace. And we are now, and they were, fellow citizens being built up and built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 3, Paul shares that his suffering for the gospel brought about this gospel. The great mystery that had been revealed was for their sake, the Ephesians' sake. And he wonderfully prays for these Ephesians again. Then in chapter 4, we have the application of our great salvation in Jesus Christ, those who are in Christ, and the commands to walk in a worthy manner of this great calling in which we've been called to walk in love, humility, and thus unity. And then we see that God gave gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, certain gifts, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. And it's in this context that body is to function, grow and mature, not be thinking like the unsaved, but renewing our minds with the truth that is in Jesus, putting on the new self. And then understanding our identity in Christ, we are to be walking in love as children of light, making the most of our time for the days are evil. And we see a command which is given and which our passage hinges upon, Ephesians 5.17. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Allow the Spirit of God to control your heart and thus your mind and actions. And then we saw the internal characteristics of a spirit-controlled life, speaking, singing, making melody in your hearts, thanking, and submitting. And then within that, we have the relationships that we have in the body of Christ and how those are applied in the context of submitting and allowing Christ to be prominent in your heart, allowing his spirit to control you. We see relationships for husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, and then For us as believers, our relationship to our enemy, the evil one. So with that in mind, we'll see how we can stand firm against such a great foe. Not great in elevated, but great in temporal strength. Finally, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's what we're going to look at primarily, but continue. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Now, as we looked at Ezekiel 28 last week, I shared the same warning here that we don't want to be just looking at passages of Scripture that have to do with our enemy. We don't want to be overly focused on our enemy. We want to focus on Jesus Christ. We want to fix our eyes on Him. But we need to understand what God reveals about our enemy so that we can obey His commands and be protected from our enemy. Now, if you don't know Christ, if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are in the domain of darkness. You are being held captive by Satan to do his will, and his will is for you to do your will, to just live your life apart from truly recognizing your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, to live it your way. And yet when we turn to God for salvation, trusting in Jesus Christ, we are delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're delivered from the dominion of darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, as Paul would share in Acts chapter 26. And if you are the Lord's child, then Satan can't touch you apart from what God allows. But yet we're going to see that when we sin, we put ourselves in a vulnerable situation with our enemy. But Satan needs permission. You might remember from Luke chapter 22 that Jesus informed Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. We know from the book of Job that Satan needed permission to mess with Job, and God gave it to him, and he did mess with Job pretty significantly, as we're going to see. We're going to see that Satan even had power when we get to Second Thessalonians to do some miraculous things as he brought the wind and stuff against Job's family and killed them. If you remember that. The reality is we have a formable foe, but yet greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, we need to remember that this passage is on the heels of what I shared earlier, that we are not to be drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. We're to be controlled by the Spirit of God. You can't do anything that we're going to look at today if you're not yielding your heart to the Lord, allowing His Word to renew your mind. And so how can we have victory against our spiritual enemy? How can that be? Notice, first of all, in verse 10, he says, Finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. These are commands from God to us. Two commands, two imperative commands. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and put on the full armor of God. We as believers, those who name the name of Christ, those who are in Christ are commanded to do this. We're commanded to do this. We're to be strong in the Lord, and we're to put on the full armor of God. Now, these two commands we're going to look at more closely in a minute, but go down to the reason in number three in your outlines. I want to look at that first. 
Why should we obey? We actually don't need to know why. God doesn't have to tell us why we need to do things. You know, he shares in his word many commands, and oftentimes he doesn't tell us why, and we need to take it on his character and his goodness and his kindness and his love that it's good for us and it's right for us to obey his commands. But yet, there are times in which he gives us the reason why we should do what he is commanding us to do, and he does that here. Notice we have this, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might put on the full armor. But why? Well, we have an enemy. We have a powerful foe, a deceitful, scheming tempter. We are in a battle that started when we believed and it will not end until we die or Christ comes to take us and deliver us from the wrath to come. Notice he says here, we are to do this so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Middle of verse 11, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The term be able speaks of given the power to do something, the ability to do something. So that we would be able to do so, that we would be able to be strengthened and thus stand firm against the schemes. The term stand firm is used quite a bit in our passage. Notice in verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to, as I just read, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, although we are in a spiritual war, and when you think of war, you think of those who are on the offensive usually win, but here we are on the defense, as we will say. We are not on the offense. We are to stand our ground, as we will say, in Christ. We are not to seek out and battle with Satan and his minions. We are commanded to stand firm, and that term in a military context spoke of holding a critical position in a battlefield. Stand firm. Now, what are we to stand firm against? Notice this, end of verse 11, the schemes of the devil. The schemes, it is his schemes that we are to stand firm against. It is what he is doing and trying to do to us that we are to stand against, as we will say. We are to stand, literally it says, to stand towards the schemes of the devil. We're to address them, in a sense, firmly in the context of the commands in which God has given, to be strengthened and to put on the full armor that we would be able to stand. So we don't just go out and stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to do something that we would be able to thus stand against the schemes of the devil and not fall because of his schemes taking root in our lives because we did not abide and trust in Christ and put on the full armor. So we're to stand firm against his schemes. Now, although Satan is a defeated foe, he is actively scheming against the people of God. And the term schemes in Greek, methodia, speaks of his methods or procedures, the way he does things, and he does them the same, as we're going to see. 
It's his stratagems, his devious methods, his tricks. It's all the way he does things. And we need to obey those commands, which we'll look at again when we finish up here, so that we could stand firm against his schemes. Well, what are his schemes? What are the things that we would stand firm against? What does God say in his word? What does he share for us? Well, to understand his schemes, we need to understand what God says about him and his methods. We saw this last week, so let's just review this. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, where we see Lucifer's life story. And you might remember we saw his sinless beginning. Verse 11, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up the lamentation against the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. And remember, it goes beyond the king of Tyre to the power behind him. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the very garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship and settings of your sockets, that's timbrels and pipes, was in you on the day you were created. They were prepared. Sinless beginning. He was created perfect in beauty and wisdom. He was in Eden. He was covered with jewels reflecting God's glory. He was Lucifer, the light bearer. He was created to praise God in song. And then we saw his privileges. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked amidst the stones of fire. He was the special cherub. That's an angel who covers. He was on God's holy mountain. He seems to have had the grandest of privileges. And then we see, although he was created perfect and blameless, he fell because of his great pride. And he sinned against the living God and was cast out of heaven for all to be appalled at him who know him. Ezekiel 28, verse 15, You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned or polluted your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. In the eyes of all who see you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will be no more. We know from the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, that he has fallen. How you have fallen, verse 12, from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of the assembly, the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's Isaiah speaking of Lucifer. Nevertheless, you will be thrown down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. We see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, that Satan took a third of the angels when he was cast out of heaven. Now we know he has access. He appears up and down, but he will eventually be thrown out for good, the end of Revelation chapter 12. So then we have the most beautiful, wise, powerful angel having fallen, 
who now continually schemes against the people of God. If you are a believer in some manner or fashion, Satan through his minions or himself, however it is, we don't know if he directly to any of us, you know, but we know we are tempted by him. We see it in scripture. We see that he schemes against us. And we are not to be ignorant of his schemes. The Apostle Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 2.11. We are not ignorant of his schemes. It's not that we don't know about how he functions. But yet we can, on a practical basis, forget. And we need to be reminded so that we would stand firm in the Lord, so that we would put on the full armor of God, that we would be able to stand against those schemes. Well, what are his schemes? Again, his names actually give us a clue. Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20, verse 1, I'll read this to you. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss, a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He's called the dragon. That's a metaphoric description that likens him to a monster, monstrous reptile. Second, he's called the serpent of old, metaphorically speaks of that cunning serpent, the snake, at first the wicked deception we see, certainly in the garden. Third, he is called the devil, diabolos, the throw through, he divides and separates. And lastly, he is called Satan, and the word Satan means adversary. He is the constant enemy of God's people, and that's what his name means, adversary. If you've ever had an adversary, they are against you. They're constantly against you. He is the one who deceives the whole world, and he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses believers day and night before God. Look at this in Revelation chapter 12. And we see here in Revelation 12, the context is there was war in heaven and Michael and his archangels, the devil and his, and the devil lost and he is thrown out. This is in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. He is thrown to earth. 